Greetings from the Mountain Mama. My name is McKenna. And hey, it's Galen. And you're listening to Living Lore. The case we're featuring this month is quite a tragic one, and fairly recent. So we're going to be doing our best to honor the victim and her family. Today we're going to be discussing the recently reopened cold case of the murder of Cynthia Miller. In August of 1981, Cynthia Jane Miller was a woman whose life was just beginning. At 27 years old, the schoolteacher had completed a bachelor degree in education and a master's degree in math from Concord College and thoroughly enjoyed her chosen career. Miller was known as having a winning personality, warm smile, and a good-natured sense of humor. She was adored by her friends and family. Miller had recently had a tough couple of years. In 1979, she had made a difficult decision to seek a divorce from her husband, Michael Cole. However, by 1981, she was finally finding reason to look toward the future with anticipation. Miller purchased a home at 103 Miller Street in Beckley from her grandfather. The home was near the Park Junior High School where she worked, and it was a source of additional income from a basement apartment that she had rented out to another young woman named Terry Boland. Cynthia also sold Avon for some additional income. Cynthia soon met and fell in love with Gary O'Neill, a city policeman in the nearby town of Leicester. Gary moved in with Cynthia, and by the summer of 1981, the pair had decided to get married. To save the confusion of explaining the name change to her students in the middle of the year, Cynthia wanted to get married before school started. The couple decided to hold a small ceremony on Friday, August 27, 1981. Unfortunately, Miller would never make it to the ceremony. The last time anyone would see her live was the eve of her wedding. On the day before her wedding, Miller spent the first part of her day decorating her new schoolroom with another teacher. She left the school at noon for a doctor's appointment and then returned home to Miller Street where she stayed until 4 p.m. She visited her father at his work, the Montgomery Wards in Beckley. He later stopped by her house to make repairs to a garage door. He stayed there until 6 p.m. At 7 p.m., Gary O'Neill arrived at the house while Miller worked on some Avon orders. She was excited about their upcoming wedding the following day, and so was O'Neill. He decided to visit his family in Princeton that night and left the house at 8 p.m. He estimated his return to be 11.30 p.m. Their downstairs tenant, Terry Boland, arrived home at 8.30 p.m. where she had difficulties opening the door to the downstairs apartment. She asked Miller for assistance with the door, and Cynthia was in high spirits as she helped and then went back upstairs. That was the last time anyone would see Cynthia Miller alive. Bolin went to bed around 9 p.m. Around this time, she heard Miller walk down the stairs to their joint laundry room and then go back up. Immediately after, Miller placed a call to her regional Avon manager about an issue with some of her orders. They remained on the phone together for about 20 minutes. 10 minutes later, around 9.30 p.m., Gary attempted to call Miller's home to let her know he would be back later than he expected. He couldn't get an answer from his fiance. O'Neill remained at his parents' home, but grew increasingly worried that his call to Miller remained unanswered. He finally left for home at 11 p.m. At around that same time, Terry Bolin was awakened by a call from her father, whose car had broken down. Bolin left the apartment a few minutes later to pick up her father to give him a ride home. She didn't notice anything out of the ordinary when she left. O'Neill arrived back at the apartment at 12.40 a.m. Miller's car was in the driveway. He noticed that the front porch light was not turned on, which was curious since Miller always left it on when she was expecting him. Using the flame of his lighter to guide his way, O'Neill unlocked the front door. He was met with a gruesome sight. Only two feet away, lying on the floor, was the lifeless body of Cynthia. Miller. The back of her head was soaked in blood. O'Neill was stunned. He managed to call 911 and then started CPR on his fiance. Police soon arrived and attempted to resuscitate the young woman, but their attempts were in vain. Miller was declared dead at the scene. O'Neill was left in a distraught, disbelieving state. She was discovered with gunshot wounds and deceased. 
It's fair to say O'Neill was no longer a suspect at this stage, said the lead investigator on the case, Sergeant Morgan Bragg. According to reports, Miller had been shot in the head four times with a 25 caliber pistol. Two of the shots were from close range, and the other two were fired with the gun being pressed to her head. Aside from ballistics and some blood splatter, little evidence was found in the house. Miller's own 25 caliber pistol was found at the house and ruled out as the murder weapon. The house and surrounding neighborhood were thoroughly searched, but the murder weapon was never found. The house had no signs of forced entry and no signs of a struggle inside. Nothing had been taken from the home and Miller's body showed no signs of trauma or sexual assault. Also missing was Terry Boland. When questioned where she had been, Boland stated she had returned to the neighborhood around 1 a.m., but decided to leave when she learned what had happened to Miller. Boland moved out of the downstairs apartment the next day, telling the Raleigh Register, I didn't live there too long, only a year, and I wanted my privacy, so I made a point not to be too friendly. I don't live there anymore. I moved out today, back to my mother's, where it's safe. Which is kind of I, a... <laughs> I, that just kind of makes me a little angry, because... This woman that she wasn't close to but still knew was just murdered. And it's kind of like she's not, she's just worried about herself. Yeah. Which I get. Yeah. No one wants to be in a house. Like, I don't. I can understand moving out after someone got murdered. But at the same time, she could have showed a little bit of sympathy. Yeah, that's, that's just really weird wording in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. <sighs> Bolin admitted that there was an open vent leading from the upstairs down to her apartment and that she could hear normal conversation upstairs. The only sound she heard on the night of the murder was the phone ringing once and Cynthia walking around upstairs. So why didn't Bolin hear the four gunshots that night? To test the question, investigators returned to the home on Miller Avenue and fired several shots at the location of Cynthia's death with a 25 caliber automatic. Officers in place downstairs in Bolin's apartment agreed that the shots were very loud in the apartment. So loud, in fact, that Boland would probably have heard them even if she was asleep. According to Boland, she never saw or heard anything that night. Though skeptical, police never thought of Boland as more than a person of interest. That just doesn't sit right with me, but alright. I just find this woman extremely sketchy. Like, I don't... I don't know. I just... Uh, the whole situation just hits me wrong. Like, I feel like she should have heard it. Well, Even can, if yeah, she can hear a phone ringing, and she can hear the woman talking, but she doesn't hear four gunshots. Yeah, right above her. Yeah, and then a, a, I just think that's strange. Don't like it. I mean, it could have been that she was scared, and she was scared that someone would come after her if they thought she knew something. Maybe. But at the same time, I just don't agree. It also kills me that the police didn't push it. Yeah, they didn't they were, push it at all. They were like, "Oh, okay, well, you're not a person of interest. It's fine." Miller's body was removed from the scene and taken to Raleigh General Hospital for an autopsy. The following day, her body was taken to the office of the state medical examiner in Charleston. Both the Raleigh County Coroner and the chief state medical examiner concurred that Miller was shot at approximately 9.30 p.m. and likely died from her wounds within half an hour. So, Bullen would have been there when the shots were fired, and yet she heard nothing. But again, like I said, she did manage to be woken up by a phone call later. <sighs> Does it make any sense? Even Miller's next-door neighbor, Barry Webb, reported hearing what he thought were four firecrackers around the time police thought the murder took place. Next door. Next door. In a completely separate home. Yet the lady in the basement hears nothing. <laughs> Webb stated he had a clear view of Miller's home and looked out to investigate the source of the noise but found nothing. He told police he heard a total of what they concluded were shots 
three loud, and one muffled. So that pretty much confirms that the shots were fired at 9.30 p.m., lining up with the time of death. Employees of the Beckley Public Works joined police in the search of Miller's neighborhood, but no additional evidence was discovered. Investigators spent the next few months conducting interviews of everyone who had any connection to the case. Although an enormous file of details was compiled, it did not contain one clue that would lead to the murderer. Cynthia Miller was laid to rest in the Blue Ridge Memorial Gardens on Monday, August 30th, 1981, the same day the new school year started in Raleigh County. The case of Miller's murder dragged on for months, for years, and then eventually went cold. Little new evidence was gained during this time. In April 1982, Beckley Chief of Police Thomas Durrett contacted the Behavior Science Unit of the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia to request a psychological profile in the homicide case. Officials from the BSU responded within a month, but their insights were more disturbing than helpful. Specialists emphasized that they lacked enough information to compile a full profile, but they did offer these psychological theories concerning the murderer of Miller. Number one, the victim knew her killer very well. Number two, the victim had recently rejected her killer. Number three, the number of gunshot wounds to the victim's head is a sign of overkill, as well as anger, on the part of the perpetrator. Number four, it was very likely in a case like this that the perpetrator has already been interviewed by police authorities and appeared to be extremely cooperative. And number five, the perpetrator would appear to be distraught over the victim's death. This was not merely role-playing. While he hated the victim at the time of the murder, he also loved her very much. Why are they assuming it's a he? Have you not seen it? Like, Criminal Minds? It's always a man. <laughs> I, I mean, and it's always a woman victim. I mean, it very well could have been a man, but just yeah. because it showed signs of aggression doesn't mean... Although I, I guess that rules out Basement Lady because it said that they would have seemed distraught and she acted like she couldn't do this. That's true. So... I, I genuinely, like, I don't think she did it. I just think it's suspicious how she reacted. Like, I feel like she knows more. Yeah. She's high in oh, something. Well. <laughs> I'm aggravated. <laughs> in 2019, Crime Stoppers of West Virginia announced that they were forming a new multi-agency task force, and Miller's murder would be the first case they would focus on. They offered a reward of $10,000 for information leading to the resolution of cases under their purview. On May 8, 2018, the Beckley Police Department publicly announced they had reviewed new information which could lead to a break in the then 36-year-old case. Sergeant Morgan Bragg stated the information they received reinforced an original theory that there may have been some relationship between Miller and her assailant. Finally, on October 13, 2020, the Raleigh County Prosecuting Attorney's Office announced that a man was indicted for the murder of Cynthia Miller. The man in question? Earl James Robbins. At his first court appearance, the 64-year-old appeared via video conference in front of Judge Darrell Poling. Robbins was charged with the August 1981 murder of Cynthia Miller. Robbins was indicted by the same grand jury in October 2020 for the abduction, kidnapping, and sexual assault of a 13-year-old girl in Beckley in 1980. It is unknown whether the two cases are connected. Robbins pleaded not guilty to the five-count indictment. In a federal civil suit filed by himself against former Raleigh County prosecuting attorney Kristen Keller, Robbins makes a slew of complaints at admissions in the case, including a detailed account of the day Miller was killed, how he learned of the murder, and his cooperation with police in the days that followed. On the day Miller was killed, Robbins said her fiancé, Gary O'Neill, had come to his house over an unpaid parking ticket. Just moments later, he said he was walking outside and happened upon O'Neill at his house on Miller Street talking to a woman. In the complaint, he said, I never asked who she was. There was no reason to do so. I said, I'll take care of the ticket. No animosity. No bad words between me and him. Robbins claimed he learned of the killing from a friend, Jean Jackson, the following morning while walking down Smoot Street. That's 
my grandma's name. Jean Jackson. Oh, gosh. Does your grandma know? <laughs> no different kind of Jean, but she's... A week or so later, Robbins claimed he was confronted by police over the unpaid parking ticket, and later the murder. He said he was asked to take a polygraph, to which he complied. I assumed it was over, he wrote. Later, Robbins said he was informed by his son through a letter that he and one other person knew who killed Miller, but that his son mysteriously died in 2017 before he could tell him. It's just strange. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of pieces here that just, they're not- They're not up. adding up. Ugh. Happened upon his house. That's, that's weird. Yeah, I just- <laughs> There was. How strange. Hello. Mm -hmm. In the complaint, Robbins sought relief from the federal court in the form of those bringing charges to be arrested and pay $50 million to the petitioner and his children. Since the filing, Robbins has sent the U.S. Southern District Court additional documents asking the court to pay his $400 filing fee and claiming the prison guards stole $660 from his stimulus payment. A new attorney, G. Todd Huck, has since been assigned to the case. He filed a motion for discovery on May 20th, 2021. So what led to this new lead in a 40-year-old case? Authorities say details cannot be released yet as they prepare for trial. The work of law enforcement officers who worked the case in the past and kept detailed records preserved have received a lot of credit. This took a lot of reaching out, said Bragg. Obviously, you know our suspect is in California and he's moved around a lot. We had to follow that trail. An extradition hearing will be held at a later date in California before Robbins can be brought back to West Virginia. He is currently incarcerated on other charges at a California state prison. Justice for Cynthia Miller seems to finally be in reach, but for friends and family, the memory of Cynthia is ever-present. Miller's sister, Diana Jones, recalled the wonderful teacher her sister was to her students. She was very talented. I always said, God picked a rose for his garden. Betty Hara was a student of Miller's in seventh grade. She cared enough to spend lunch breaks after school. Whenever we needed her, she would help. It didn't matter whether you had Converse shoes or cross cutters. All that stuff didn't matter to her. O'Neill and both Miller's mother and father have since passed away. But neighbor Hattie Wickline said Miller's father never gave up hope that her killer would be caught. Only time will tell if this case will find its long-awaited resolution. Thanks for listening to Living Lore, a production of The Scenic Route, sponsored by Lupress. If you like what you hear, please remember to like and share on Spotify or your favorite podcast provider. Or you can check out our Twitter or send us your own spooky story at livinglordwv and livinglordwv at gmail.com, respectively. Join us next time when we discuss our visit to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this. I just feel like there's spooks. There's lightning striking and bats screeching in the background. We will be doing it in the spookiest time of year, October. Ah! <laughs> Much excite! Much excite! Thank you.